Welcome to the HIF Player, bringing Harrogate International Festivals into your home. This event was recorded live at the Feakston Old Peculiar Crime Writing Festival. Enjoy. Hello, it's great to be here. It is terrific to be here, and um, I'm David Baldacci. And I'm Joseph Finder. And I would like to thank my publisher, Pam McMillan, for sponsoring this conversation between the two of us. And they're a great publisher, and this is my first time at Harrogate and the Crime Festival, and it's just a, it's a thrill to be here. It really is. I love Harrogate. I've been here several times, and I feel fortunate each time I'm asked back. And I really hope my, my mobile phone doesn't go off tonight. Because <laughs> I believe that Pam McMillan has hacked into it. <laughs> just saying. So, David, um, we were talking before about, um, you know, writers are not famous. I mean, we're famous, but not famous in a sense, right? Right. We it's don't, a, it's you know. an anonymous fame. Yeah, it really it's is. strange, isn't it? You can be a very well-known writer, and nobody knows you at all, which is, in some ways is good. You're not mobbed by fans. We're not movie stars. But people ask me sometimes, do you get recognized in public? And the answer is yes. It's rare, but I do. But even when I'm recognized in public, it is not the ego stroke you think it might otherwise be. The last time, uh, my wife and I were having lunch at, uh, in somewhere, I think in D.C., and uh, having a nice conversation, and every time I looked up, this lady from across the way who was having lunch, I guess, with her husband was staring at me. And this happened five or six times until I got so freaked out I stopped looking. <laughs> and I was very much surprised to sort of glance up a few minutes later and find the lady standing next to me. And she pushed me over in my booth and sat down next to me. <laughs> you know, she was a very passive lady, by the way. And she said, uh, you are who I think you are, aren't you? <laughs> I can't even diagram that sentence. But, um, and I said, well, do you read a lot of fiction? And she said, oh, yes, I do. <laughs> I said, okay, I probably am who you think I am. She said, oh, my God, this is so amazing. So she turns and she screams across the restaurant to her husband, I was right, Joe. It is John Grisham. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, it's, uh, it, you know, again, it's just not the ego stroke you think it might otherwise be. And, and I, I know John, he's, he's a friend of mine. I've done events with John. Um, at that moment in my life, I was not feeling the love for John at all. <laughs> and my poor wife, to put it delicately, she sort of, I don't know how she did it, but she blew iced tea out of her nose <laughs> and said very politely to the woman, you know, that's the right genre, but the wrong author. <laughs> And the woman looked at me again, and she said, oh, my God, are you Baldacci? <laughs> and uh, I said, yeah, I am Baldacci. And obviously very disappointed that I was not Monsieur Grisham, uh, she yelled across the restaurant again to her husband and said, you are right, Joe. It is the Italian. <laughs> <laughs> I've had uh, similar but different experiences. I, um, on my last book tour, uh, I got on a plane, and someone was reading my book. I'm sure you've done this. And I was thinking, well, so should I say anything? Probably not. And I walked down the aisle, and it turned out that my seat was directly behind this guy. So I sat down, and there he was reading it, and I couldn't resist it anymore. And I finally put my head in between the seats, and I said, uh, how's that book? <laughs> and he said, <laughs> how, how, how far are you into it? Not 15 pages. It gets a lot better around 20, 22. <laughs> right? 
Yeah, <laughs> basically, it's nice not to be recognized sometimes, I think. It is nice. And I, that's happened to me, too. Uh, I, I've since learned, I have this rule. If I see you reading one of my books in public, I'm never going to come up to you, ever, yeah. Yeah. for two reasons. One, I'm actually a private person, and I would never want to invade someone else's privacy. And secondly, and far more importantly, if they're not enjoying the book, I don't want to hear about it. I really don't. It's just right, not right. something that I really want to hear but about. But you've done, you've had this thing where people are, they look at you and they look at the back of the yeah, picture, right? They do. They and do. it's like, they do. Yeah. You look much younger. In the picture. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I, yeah, you know, right? it's just not worth it. It's too much downside. Um, I would love to talk about the research that we all do um, and what you think what you enjoy doing, what you don't enjoy doing, whether it's important or not. Does it make any difference? Yeah. It's, um, I can tell when I read a, a book, probably within the first 20 or 30 pages, whether the writer really has done the research or done the fluff research, you know, gone out and talked to people, done some of the things he's, he or she's writing about, or they've Wikipedia'd it or Googled it. It's just it's sort of easy to tell which path they've taken. I've always thought the research is really important. Uh, it adds a nice authenticity to the book. And it also opens up a lot of other subplots. The more you know about things, the more things you can invent and create. A book I just finished writing uh, deals with an army ranger who's the main protagonist. So I flew down to Fort Benning, Georgia, and I was with the rangers for three days sort of doing some of the things they do. The first thing they had me do was jump out of a parachute tower. And when you, you have, they put you in, in the straps, and they said the straps up here are important because they will keep you from dying. But um, the lower straps are really more important because when you jump out of the tower, you're going to drop. And if those straps around your legs are not really tightly pulled back, they're going to move, and they're going to hit a part of your anatomy. They, you do not want them to hit. <laughs> so um, I, I've always thought that, that the research is just really sort of critical. The hardest part for me is the research is leaving most of it out. Yes. That yeah, is it's, the it's, hardest it is part. Like, you know, it's like an iceberg. Yeah. Right? You really want to want the, the reader doesn't want to know how much work we've done. The reader wants to be entertained and have it feel plausible. Right. So you sort of give maybe, a, you know, 10% at the most, right. if that, right? right? I, uh, but there's also an aspect, I think, to which doing the research makes it feel real to us writing it and to the readers. And I, I, in, in Buried Secrets, um, there is a, a character who is literally buried alive. And I, I remember I had read a book a real-life story about this, and it really terrified me. And I gave it to my brother. Uh, he was a little kid, and it gave him claustrophobia. Uh, <laughs> you know, instead of giving him noogies or whatever, <laughs> it gave him claustrophobia, and now he's, he's uh, the editorial director of the New Yorker magazine. He works at the Condé Nast Tower on the 33rd floor, <laughs> and he can't get in elevators. But um, I, wanted, so, um, I wanted to know what it felt like to at least be locked in a coffin. Uh, I wasn't willing to be buried alive. That was sort of a little too far. Um, and so this is interesting. I actually called up a number of funeral directors in Boston, and I said, I would like to be locked into a casket. And they hung up on me one after another. <laughs> go figure. Yeah, I did, go figure, right? And I finally, I finally got one who said, OK, this is strange, but OK. I, I finally got to explain this was not a kinky thing, this was for research. And I got there, and the deal was that um, I would get in, they would lock it, and they would let me out when I told them I had enough. Got into the casket, and what I didn't realize was that they're soundproof. Very thick metal. 
So I lay back, and it was so comfortable. It was like, it was, it's, you know, I think that it's not appreciated <laughs> how comfortable caskets are. So it's a soft mattress, mattress and pillow, and I began to get woozy, and I thought, uh-oh, I think I'm losing oxygen here. And, I, and I, I felt what it was like to be in the, and, and I said, okay, I'm done, and there was no response. Okay, I'd like to be uh, let out of here, please. Nothing. And it took about 10 or 12 minutes. And I thought, oh my God, what if they went out to, what if they closed early? What if they went out to lunch, you know? Finally, they opened it up. And I just thought, all right, so was that worth it? I don't know. I'm not sure I'd do it again, but it's the last, I hope it's the last time I get into a casket while I'm alive. I find it really intriguing that a, a casket is soundproof. Yeah. Isn't it? <laughs> and comfortable, but yeah. And, and comfortable. They, uh, they don't want you to be disturbed. Right. You know? so, um, yeah, yeah. That's, I, that, I remember a Twilight Zone episode where this prisoner had paid off this prison guard to sneak him out of the prison in a casket. And it was a, sort of a deep casket, and it was a way for him to get out. And so he, got in a, he was put in a casket, and they took him out, and uh, he was put in the ground. And, it, and the, the thing was, the prison guard was supposed to come and dig him up, right? So he gets in the casket, he's buried, and he's in the darkness, and he has a match with him. He strikes a match, and he's looking around, looking around, and nobody's coming. He's panicking. And he had been placed in the coffin with another body. That's how they got him out of, out of there. So when he looked around and looked down, the body below him was the prison guard who had died <laughs> of a heart attack <laughs> unexpectedly. <laughs> and uh, that guy was totally screwed. So, uh, <laughs> the, um, the, in terms of the research that we, we both worked with intelligence agencies and government people, right? What's your experience been with that? Do you find people are cooperative? It depends. Um, I wrote a book uh, called Simple Genius where I was dealing with uh, Camp Perry in near Williamsburg, Virginia. It's a, technically it's owned by the Navy, but really it's sort of the, uh, a farm, a training farm for the CIA. And uh, I had my assistant call up to see if I could, the public liaison office, CIA has a public affairs office, which is kind of weird, but yeah. uh, we're super secret, really don't exist, but we, hey, we'd like to talk to you. Right. And. Um, she called up and said, I, you know, I work with David Baldacci. He would like to uh, talk to people who worked at Camp Perry, if it's possible maybe to go down. If you can't tour the place, at least, you know, ask some questions. And the lady from the CIA said, you know, we're, we're very aware of Mr. Baldacci's books at the CIA, and you can tell him we neither confirm nor deny the existence of Camp Perry. <laughs> and my assistant came back and told me that, and, and I said, well, you know, they might want to take down the highway sign. Right. <laughs> it right? says, welcome to Camp Perry. Yeah, but, um, yeah. But I found that other agencies are, are pretty accommodating once you gain their trust. Right. And I like to prepare really well before I go in so that I know what they do. I know their lingo, their jargon. Yeah. So they, they don't feel like I'm wasting their time. Yeah. And they feel like, okay, this guy's done his homework. He's a professional, so we will treat him professionally. If you go in and you haven't done any, any prep work, you have no idea what questions to ask, and you ask stupid ones, you don't get their respect. They get, but it also, it's easier for us because we've published books. We're known and... There's a little bit of a fanboy thing going on sometimes, yeah, which is. is nice. They've actually read our stuff. Yeah. I also find, I'm sure you have too, that people will talk to us because we write fiction. Mm -hmm. And they would never talk to a reporter. Right, right. Uh, we're safer. Right. You know, they can tell us things, uh, and we're not going to use their name. We're not going to blow their cover. Right. And as long as we respect that secrecy, it's, uh, it's okay. Uh, but there's always a line, I think we've both found this, where 
you hear something and you think, should I use that? Yeah. Right? This has come up, I suspect, with... Yeah, it has. And sometimes I'll even be more open about it and saying, I'll tell you this, but it can never end up in a book. And um, I was a former lawyer. I understand confidences really well. And it never does because I, I'm not looking to do any a blueprint for a terrorist or anything like that. So I've always play fair with that because once you don't play fair, the word spreads very quickly and you just, you're just blackballed and, and come right. off completely. Right. So, um, and I, I, um, um, I, one of my books I did research with, I had actually the official cooperation of the FBI and the CIA. And it, I had a, a terrorist entering the country. And I said to this the guy who was the head of counterterrorism at the FBI, all right, so he has a forged passport. He's entering the country. You know, he'll be, will he get in or when has he stopped? At what point? And the guy said, he probably will never get caught because the CIA and the FBI don't talk to each other. Yeah. Right? <clears throat> we found that out later in, in September 11th. But I heard that and I just said, all right, first of all, I don't want anyone to know this. <laughs> like, this is stupid and embarrassing. And I also thought, you know what? I don't think my readers are going to believe that. <laughs> right. Right. You know, it strains credulity. It does. Right? It does. Because the people, people who read books, you know, you watch television, and on television, the crime fighters are really impressive. They have these incredible laboratories, these really cool cutting-edge offices that yes. you know, cost millions of dollars. You go to the real places. It's so depressing. <laughs> it's, it's not nearly as cool, and no. half the time the computers don't work. Right. Um, but that's just, you know, that's just the way the world is. But people have that heightened expectations of what is possible. And if you got one guy and you're looking for him out of six and a half billion, it'll take people on TV maybe a minute, maybe in a minute and a half to right. track him down. Right. And they'll get him. Um, whereas in real life, there's that notion of you know enhancing the image. You know, you've got a photograph and you want to enhance it, enhance it, enhance it. And on TV, there are sound effects, right? Right, and then they can enhance an image, a surveillance camera image. You can go into the eyeball of someone and see someone they were looking at, right? Right. And I ask about that, and they go, "Oh, come on, yeah. please, yeah. I wish." Yeah. Right? Half the time it's like, the damn fax machine's not <laughs> working again. Right. You go, fax? Somebody fix that. Right, right. And they're using a Dell computer <laughs> from 1998 or whatever it is. And, you know, it's just not as impressive as it is on no. TV. And I'm not sure our readers want to know all that, yeah. right? They, they don't. They want, it to be, they want it to be juiced up. Yeah. So have you, ever, um, have you ever done research that you wish you hadn't done or anything that sort of felt too risky or... Yeah, there was one I did, uh, I wrote a book called True Blue, and it was set in sort of the high crime areas in D.C. Yeah. So I decided, well, I, you know, I really need to get to know that area more intimately than I did, outside of the touristy monument stuff. I, I'm a friends with the um, police chief in D.C., Kathy Lanier. She was the first female police chief in D.C., extraordinary woman. And uh, she arranged that I could go on some ride-alongs and police cruisers, which is cool. You're in the cruiser, you talk to the police officer, you see the world, his world through his eyes, and you ask lots of questions. But then you go on walk-alongs where you park the cruiser, and you're with one police officer you know, at night going through back alleys looking for bad guys to arrest. And I had to sign a bunch of waivers. You know, it was basically, um, you can die in any number of horrible ways, and you will never be able to sue us for it, okay? Right. So it's all on you. And I signed those papers, and... The walk-alongs, he made four arrests while I was with him. And he would say, we would stop at these alleys. And he said, the most important thing about alleys in D.C. is you have to know as a police officer where those alleys come out. 
because uh, all the bad guys do. And if you don't, that's how you get am ambushed. So, of course, me, every alley we go in, I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> you know, do you know where this alley comes out? And yeah. He would say yes. And I said, okay, we can proceed. But, um, but I also pointed out to him that, you know, keep in mind, you've got body armor and a 9-millimeter block. I've got a notepad and a big pen <laughs> as well. But we were, we were on this sort of patrol, and uh, we were passing this fence, and uh, something all of a sudden hit this fence so hard that it knocked the board off and hit me in the head and almost knocked me out. And there was this dog trying to break through this fence. It was like a Rottweiler slash Hound of the Baskervilles. I mean, this was like a bad dog. Yeah. And he's, he's got his teeth on the remaining board trying to torque the board off so that he can get through the gap and just kill us. <laughs> now, the police officer had pulled his gun, and we're watching this dog like eating through this board, and I looked at him and I said, what do we do? You know, wh what does the manual say we do? Right. And he said, the manual says we run like hell. <laughs> so we're running, and as we're running, I'm, I, I said, who, whose dog is that? And he said, that's, that's Psycho's dog. I said, who is Psycho? He said, Psycho was a double murderer. He was sent away for life, but he left his damn dog. <laughs> and nobody knows what to do with the thing. He's nuts. So I was so impressed by that and scared by that that I created a character in the book called Psycho. <laughs> that it was a drug dealer who was just, you know, not a guy you'd ever want to run into. Um, but that was probably... And you got that from the research. I got, got, I, being there. I got that from the research. And it was also one of the craziest things that ever happened to be. He, well, the last guy that he arrested, he was lying face down on the pavement, handcuffed, reading him his rights. They called in a cruiser to transport him to jail. I'm standing there very awkwardly, things, just feeling so weird. And they lift the guy up to put him in the cruiser, and they swing him around, and we come to face, face to face. And the guy's looking at me, and I'm looking at him, and he does a double take, and he says, I love your books. <laughs> <laughs> He knows who you are. Yeah. He, he, that may he, not be a good thing. It may right? not be a good thing. I, I was thinking, well, you know, you've got a lot of reading time coming up. Right. Yeah, exactly so. right. And yeah, we, I, yeah, we both don't do well in prisons, actually. My, my books are... I think we really. do well That's in prisons. That's what I've heard, which is, I guess, a compliment. <laughs> I, was, um, I went to Moscow a few years ago to do research for a book. Uh, I wanted to have some scenes involving the mafia in Moscow. So I speak Russian. And I knew someone who was in one of these organized crime groups in Moscow. And he arranged for me to penetrate a meeting, you know, as, as a Muscovite, wearing the right bad clothes, you know. And um, I got there, and uh, we were supposed to meet at midnight. And I got a call at my hotel at around 8 p.m. saying, Joe, don't show up at this meeting. They think you're with the CIA and they're going to kill you. And I just thought, I don't think I need to write this book. <laughs> I can make this up. <laughs> this is what Wikipedia is for. <laughs> no thanks. Right? Wow, so I got out of the country, but that was terrifying. You know. My God. Well yeah. So yeah. now from now on my research has got to be domestic US, <laughs> you know, I, none of that stuff, right? Well, Joe's written a couple of books, too, that he's written the books, and then uh, a little while later, not that much later, the, sort of the events that he's written about in yeah. his novels have actually transpired in real life. So I wanted to ask you, how, how, one, how does that feel, and two, is it because, I, I don't believe in coincidences like that. I think that, you know, I, I believe that the material you write about, uh, you're sort of extrapolating out what yeah. could be possible. That's what we do, right? That. We sort of, we sort of, this is the thing about being a novelist, is you you feel free to imagine what could happen. And even if it makes you look stupid, right? <laughs> uh, 
So in the case of, of that novel, The Moscow Club, I, um, I'd been talking to CIA people who really thought there would be a coup in the Kremlin, but they would never say this publicly. In fact, they wouldn't even report this up the line because it would make them look stupid. And I heard that and I said, this makes sense. So really what I was doing was, it wasn't that I had any kind of predictive power, obviously. I was just sort of listening to rumors mm -hmm. and gossip and, and I was willing to make a fool out of myself. Um, and when the novel came out, the, one of the first reviews, I think it was the New York Times, talked about the far-fetched plot. You know, this is a coup <laughs> in the Kremlin involving Gorbachev. Far-fetched plot. And then six months later, I got a call from one of these CIA guys saying, put on CNN, I think someone in Moscow read your book. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so uh, I guess things caught up to the reviewer, right, in the New York, New York Times. I, I had a very strange experience, though, um, a few weeks ago. Someone broke into my office, did what they call a black bag job. And I found that my computer, um, backup computer was missing. And my assistants as well. And the FBI came to investigate and they said, do you have any classified information? And I said, well, he said, no, wait, before you answer this, if you say yes, your life will change. <laughs> no! <laughs> but the truth is, I didn't have any classified information. I had names of people to talk to, I had contacts. And the FBI figured out that I had, um, I had been on Russian TV talking about how corrupt Putin's secret service was. And they didn't like this. Uh. And I mentioned that, I, that I'd, I'd talked about my intelligence contacts and what they were telling me. And I guess the Russians figured I'm an easy target. I'm a writer, you know? Right. So, um, and it, I basically, the FBI said, don't go to Moscow again, or at least <laughs> while Putin's in office. And as a result, I talked to my sources, and we both have, you know, great sources in terms of security and all that. I now have a pick-proof lock, yeah. you know? And uh, it, people can't, the bad guys can't get into the office. But I just sort of think, man, I'm a novelist. I'm like, <laughs> I am not worth your time, right? What is that all about? You know? I know. I, I think the same thing. Just, yeah. Yeah. You go, up, go after more significant people. We just tell stories. Right, exactly. Have you been corrected for oh. errors you've made in your books? Oh, yes. Um, mm -hmm. this is, oh, yes. <laughs> Love that, right? Particu the, the, the gun aficionados are, the, I think, the most diligent and the most obsessive about that. Yep. The United States, obviously, um, People love their guns over there, and I think we have 300 million people in the United States, including every man, woman, and child, and we have, I don't know, like uh, 487 million guns. I don't know how that works out, but it, yeah. lots of people have lot, a lot yeah. more than one. Yeah. So if you make a mistake about safeties on automatics, if you make a mistake, I, I wrote one book where I created a gun uh, for a character, just made it up, and a guy wrote in and said, uh, <laughs> that's, that's not a real gun, you're, you're an idiot, you're a moron, you're totally stupid, you know nothing about guns, don't ever write about guns again. And I wrote back and said, I made it up. It's fiction. <laughs> I can do this. And while I was having this conversation with this guy online, another guy, another gun aficionado wrote in and said, no, no, that's a real gun. I fired it. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, you, you get corrected. I had one guy who wrote in. He said, I'm an I'm a American Airlines uh, captain. Uh, I, I fly the 767s. And you wrote in a book that the plane took off from Dallas Airport and flew at an altitude of 38,000 feet uh. to Los Angeles. And um, unfortunately, in the United States, when you fly uh, in that direction, east to west or west to east, when you fly uh, east to west, you fly at an odd altitude. So you'll be at 33, 35, 37, 39. 
When you're flying back the other way, you'll be at 32, 34, 36, 38. <laughs> so you would not have been at that altitude. He said, otherwise, I greatly enjoyed the book. <laughs> <laughs> but he did add that, it, just to make you feel better, Stephen King made the same mistake in Langoliers. His novel <laughs> Langoliers. So you're in good company. But, you know, what can you do? You yeah. can't know everything. And people who write in and they legitimately find something is wrong, I thank them. I pass that you know, errata sheet on to the publishers so we yeah. can fix it. But, you know, we're not perfect. No, and I, I had someone, it's always, you're right, it's always the, the gun nuts, if I may say that, um, who write in. And I, I had in one of my books, I talked about someone releasing the safety on a Glock. Yeah. And I got all these letters, years and years, and then emails, you know, there are no, there's no safety on a Glock pistol. So I decided, all right, you know what? Writing about guns without having fired one is like writing about sex without. <laughs> so why not? You know, so I'd, I got a gun license. I learned how to shoot. I have guns now. I'm very careful about this. And in the new book, Buried Secrets, I have a, a talk about Nick, my character, and his beloved SIG uh, P250, six hour P P250. Uh, which I mentioned had an aluminum frame, blah, blah, blah. So someone emailed me last week and said, number one, you know, whoever your gun advisor is, you ought to fire him. Because right. number one, the SIG does not have a metal frame. And number two, it's a piece of crap. <laughs> so I wrote back to him. I cut and pasted the part from the website, SIGSAR website, that says the P250's metal frame. <laughs> And I wrote back and I said, you know, thank you for the correction. I'll tell Sig Sauer to correct their website. <laughs> and he wrote back and he said, well, but it's still a piece of crap. <laughs> so, you know, you can't really argue, right? You, you can't. Well, you can't. Well, you just got to let those guys go. Otherwise, yeah. it gets kind of it's kind of weird. Yeah, that's so. right. I had a running argument for a guy for a while. who I wrote, a, I wrote about a guy who came back from Vietnam, uh, hooked on drugs, and had it sort of wrecked the rest of his life. And a guy in the military wrote me and said, I can't believe that you would intimate that anybody who fought in Vietnam was actually on drugs. <laughs> and I wrote back and I said, well, there was a whole government study and cover-up, and the military admitted they were actually providing drugs to their own soldiers. Right. That's, you know, that's in undisputable. And the guy wrote back and said, are you telling me that you think the United States government gave drugs to its own soldiers? You, and then he just went off. And I thought he was going to find me and kill me. Um, so yeah. I just thought, I, you just, you gotta have to, you have to let those things go after a while. It's just not, it's not it, worth it. Yeah, but you know, you, you get nervous sometimes. Oh, I mean, I've gotten, I, I did get, I was on television and um, I guess the, um, the interviewer, uh, Sean Hannity, who's in Fox News, yeah. okay, um, asked yeah. me, he said, Joe, you voted for Obama, right? And you know, in the US, you don't, you're not supposed to talk about your politics, God forbid. And I said, yes, I did, you know, and proudly. And um, uh, I got, my, my website was almost crashed with the amount of hate mail, email I got, including one death threat from a guy. He said, I know where you live. I can find this on, you know, using, you know, Google Maps, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This is a search engine. I can find you, and I will kill you. And I forwarded that to the Secret Service, and I wrote back to him, and I said, so that's a felony. You're, you're aware of this. And he wrote back, and he said, I'm so sorry I was drunk, you know. <laughs> but what's this all about? Right, right. It's just he wrote back, I mean, it was drunk. I voted for Obama, too. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I, I would have, you know, with Sean Hannity, I would have, if he asked you if you voted for Obama, and I, I would have asked Sean. I said, I assume you voted for Obama, too, Sean. So I <laughs> can crash his website. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so the, um, uh, we have time for 
we don't have to do questions yet, right? Or, okay. No, we're yeah. good. We're All right, good. good. So um, uh, I actually wanted to ask some more about um, about sort of fan interactions and how you deal with that. And, and here's what I'm thinking. Um, reviews in the U.S. in particular are very different from what we hear from fans. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, and what's your feeling about, about book reviews? <clears throat> Joe and I were talking about this earlier. And first of all, in the United States, the number of reviews have just plummeted. A lot of newspapers no longer have book sections. It's amazing. Yeah. And they don't really review books. And the books they review are very sort of finite in number and also limited in scope. Uh, most book reviews are limited to literary fiction, whatever really that means. Mm -hmm. And they don't, and if they review commercial fiction, which is, I guess, technically what Joe and I write, it's usually they, they review it just to trash it. And I, the movie industry does it really well. Uh, the movie industry, uh, the reviewers there understand that it's in everybody's interest to have a, a very vibrant movie industry and that every movie can't be the same. You can't have every movie is not going to be Oscar caliber. But they review films such that if a movie satisfies its goals, if it's a big summer tent pole popcorn movie, Transformers, Hangover 2, brought, whatever, right. and it's, this is what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to be light and funny and entertaining and maybe a little bit gross, maybe a little bit infantile, but that's the goal. And the reviewers will look at that and say, it's a good movie. For what it is, go see it. It's a right. good movie. And they'll review an Oscar movie differently. In the book world, it's like if your book is not going to be nominated for a Nobel Prize or a Pulitzer, it must be crap. And if more than nine people want to read it, it really must be crap. Right, right. And that's the sort of review you're going to get. I find that really annoying because I've always thought the purpose of a review is to tell people whether you should buy this book, whether you like it or not, which means you want to review it as the book it is, right? If it's a thriller, talk about whether it worked as a thriller, right? Um, but my feeling is that a lot of reviewers are often frustrated novelists <clears throat> and look at this and they say, damn it, look how well he sells, right? <laughs> so there may not be the best people to review these things. There's also an element, I think, of commerce here, which is that movies buy so many ads in newspapers that the movie sections are thick. And if they trash Transformers, Right. or Hangover 2 or whatever it is, right. they're going to have a problem, yeah. right? Yeah, book Whereas publishers have a lot fewer dollars to yeah. throw at the, at the newspaper. Right, so sure. then there are no book sections. They're not yeah. losing anything right. by trashing books. And it's, I think it's a disservice. It is. I think it's, uh, and at the same time, reviewers often lament the fact that no, more people don't read books, um, <laughs> yeah. which is sort of counterintuitive of what they're trying to do. It's like there are only 11 books in the world people should read, and only nine people should read each of them. Right, but we really want a very vibrant book community, right. you know. So somehow do that. It's just it's kind of it's kind of crazy, and it's almost when they they describe a book as a page turner, it's almost like it's a derogatory term. Yeah, that means it's sort of lightweight and not really um, capable of a serious reader. Whereas, I read lots of different books. I'm sure most of us do. Everything from you know books that could win prizes uh, to books that I just want to read and escape from life and just, you know, fly through the pages and have a thrill. Right. Um, and same reasons we go to the movies. And each book sort of fills a different need that people have at certain yeah. periods in their life. And I think it's, it's all good and should be sort of treated with respect. Yeah, I mean, you know, Stephen King used to say, well, I write the literary equivalent of, you know, a Big Mac and fries, whatever <laughs> it is, but, um, which is self-deprecating. He's a terrific writer. But, yes. but um, what I think he was saying there is, you know, some books are ice cream, and some books are, 
are Big Macs and fries or hamburgers, and some of them are steaks, and some of them are, are curry, and you know, it's, right? We all want different things at different times. Right. And um, what we do is to entertain people, but also to sort of give them a kind of a glimpse of an inside world. Right. And much like in, in with the movies, the big, you know, the, the huge blockbusters in film and the huge blockbusters in, uh, in fiction, they help feed the industry so that some right. books that are very worth reading but will have a limited audience for a variety of factors, but for the dollars coming in from the big fiction, right. publishers will never be able to publish those books. Yeah. So that really, you know, in that sense, the, the blockbuster writers really help the whole industry and in, in get books to the market and to readers that otherwise publishers just couldn't afford to do. So in that right. way, it's, it's also... It, it doesn't work that way in the same way in, in, with studios, but with publishers, yeah, there are books that p editors really want to publish that will make no money, right? right? And as long as we're making money for the publishers... They can do it. Yeah, they can do it. Yeah. And so, you know, but reviewers don't really care about that. So, I don't know. I, I just... Um, uh, as a consumer, that's actually my concern, is I, I want to be able to know if a book works as a thriller or a mystery. That's all. I just don't want someone saying, well, harumph, you know. <laughs> you know. Yeah, I know. Um, um, well, we have the world of e-books now, and yeah. um, in the United States, we reached a tipping point probably seven, eight, nine years ago, where uh, it's, you're, you're selling more e-books per book than you are selling hardcover books or yep. real books. Yep. And um, about a uh, couple of years ago, uh, a lot of us saw the handwriting on the wall. This is sort of where the world is going, and I sort of embraced and Joe and I have talked about this too, I've sort of embraced the technology that it's an opportunity where we can do more. Um, we can add stuff to an enhanced ebook that we couldn't put into a book. I did one where I had a video where I took you to my office and showed you where I do my stuff and all the things I have at the office that sort of inspire me. And I give you an alternate ending that I considered using in the book but then discarded. And I show you my outlines and edited manuscript pages so you can see how I sort of put the book together. Which You'll show you that do. to them? I'll show it can them. be very show. embarrassing. I know. I, it, it's, it's, it's very messy, <laughs> yeah, too. You yeah. know, it's all over the place. Yeah. But it shows a creative process. But I, I just, it doesn't matter to me how people read the book, whether they read it online, on an iPhone, or an iPad, or a Kindle, or with a real book sitting on the beach, or upside down in their bed. It doesn't really matter so much as the, the, the content is what's important. And people reading the book, however they read it, uh, I just want them to read the books. And that's what's most important. But I, I see the e-books as a real opportunity. You're, yet you're... Your teenage kids don't read e-books, right? My teenage kids right. read real books because they're, they're sick of staring at computer screens all day. When they relax, they want to just grab a real book, uh, which yeah. I think is a great thing. We need real books. We need real bookstores for people to go into, and they serve a vital community interest. Yeah. I think independent bookstores and even the chains, it just, it's, it's a great place to go and browse and ask questions and word of mouth and all that. And we need that, um, and I think we, we will still have that. But uh, we need to embrace and enlarge the reading public. Yeah, I mean, I, I always prefer a real book myself. I but when I'm traveling, I have an iPad and a Kindle. You know, if I'm doing research, I click, 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 and I can download to a Kindle. My 17-year-old daughter, who never makes any phone calls, she only texts her friends, reads real books. And all of her friends do as well. So it's funny, because it, here in the UK, e-books are pretty minor, right? And there's still a small section of the market. Um, and I, in some senses, I sort of feel like we come from the future <laughs> to tell you that it's very different in the future, <laughs> you know. And, but whatever, you know, 
all we care about is writing stories. You know, however, whatever the technology is, you know, whether it's, you know, paperbacks were new at one point. Yeah, you know? paperbacks were the cutting edge, you know. Who, who thought about right. making a soft cover on a book? That was, you know, Penguin, your publisher, started the paperback, right, in the, in the 30s, early 30s, I think, and it was a controversial technology, Yeah. right? Yeah. So uh, that's okay. If, e you know, if people are freaked out by e-books now and I sort of feel things will settle down, there's too much hype, yeah. But it's going to be part of the market, yeah, right? It is. You can't, you can't ignore it. You just try to embrace it and yeah. enhance it as much as you can and make it a better experience. And by the way, uh, completely off the point here, but the, uh, w when you're talking about critics and all that, um, I found an essay that um, T.S. Eliot wrote um, on Wilkie Collins in which he said, he said, you know, why do people criticize novels of sensation in which exciting things happen? Uh, Probably because uh, the, uh, uh, the the sensation left the novel. Literature sort of had turned at that point, so that people need to get need to read these books to get the excitement. And you know, it's it's like going to vaudeville. He said. So there is a function in entertainment which T. S. Eliot, who I always thought was the biggest snob in the world, mm -hmm. right, that he appreciated. He loved mystery fiction, detective fiction. I read a quote one time by John Updike. Somebody asked John Updike, um, you ever thought about writing a mystery? And his response I was you know, very blunt and, and to the point. And he said, uh, no, I, I don't think I can write mysteries. I'm not smart enough <laughs> to write mysteries. And um, there, every writing has certain elements, and, and storytelling has certain elements. But you know, mysteries do have a lot of twists and turns and red herrings and misdirections and diversions. And, you know, you're a magician and a psychologist and a writer all sort of burled into one. And you're playing with the reader's emotions and the reaction. You want to lead them down this path instead of this way. And there are certain ways you can do that, but you have to employ them. And you have to keep everything straight. And at the end, things do have to sort of make sense. Whereas in some other narrative fiction, that's not as important. It's right. much more about the prose, about the style, the language, and the plot is very much secondary. Right. Um, so uh, I admired that John Upt a man like John Optic would have made that, uh, you know, confession, and uh, I thought it. Uh, yeah, was that's good. that's interesting. I mean, you also find I've read mysteries written by so-called literary writers, and they're almost always bad. Yeah. Yeah. Because they don't get plot. Right. And you sort of realize, well, actually, I guess we are doing something that's, you know, <laughs> that not everyone can do, right? Um, and, um, but that a lot of people wish they could do. Yeah. Do you, um, in terms of plot, are well, you... Well, you, 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 you get a lot of people coming up to you and asking you, you know, have you got a great idea for a story? Yeah, yeah I love that. <laughs> I've got a great idea for a story, if only I had time. <laughs> right? I, I was on a plane one time, and... Um, the pilot came out of the cabin, <laughs> and there was a seat. My seat next to me was empty. He sat down next to me. He said, the flight attendant told me you were on board. He said, you know, over the last couple of years, I've come up with a great idea for a story. Do you want to hear it? And I looked at him. I said, you know, I like two pilots flying every plane yeah. that I'm on. So I'll make a deal with you. If you get your butt back up into the cockpit and <laughs> take charge of this plane, right. when we land, I will sit down and listen to your story. But I think it... Nobody can write a story better than you if you come up with the idea. It's your idea, your passion, and all that. It's really hard to sort of tell somebody else, here's what I want you to write. Because I've had people come up to me and say, i got a great idea for a story, um, and I'd like to collaborate with you on it. 
Uh, and so I'll sort of give you inspiration, like... Uh, and you write it up. And you write it up, which is, you know, just, just write it up for me. Yeah. But, you know, a cool hero, some type of really cool mystery, um, a hero coming in to save the day, some treasure or something other of value that you will come up with when you right, write the story. Right, right. And then give me a call when you're done, right. kind of thing. And, and we'll uh, split it, 50-50. 50-50, right. what, what a deal. But right. It's, uh, but I, I encourage everybody to write if they, if they want to. If they have something they want to say, they have a story. It need not be a novel. It could just be something about their so, family. Well, so what, what grabs you? Of, like what, how does an idea sink in? Like at what point do you say, ah, I like that? It's, uh, it's a longer process than you might think. For, at least it is for me. I, early on, I would have an idea, and I was like, oh, yeah. So I'd run to my computer or typewriter or whatever, and I'd start to write it. And then I'd run out of gas and just peter out because I hadn't thought it through. It wasn't enough material for a long-form story. Maybe it was a short story. Maybe it was a screenplay. But it wasn't what I was writing. And I'd waste a lot of time. Now I kind of I think about it. I let it percolate for a while. And I kind of think it all the angles through. Is there enough material here? What characters do I need to inhabit this? What research do I need to do? Are there enough subplots thrown off in the main plot to really make mm -hmm. this viable for a 400-page novel? And you do have to think those things through. And then you sit down and you sort of, you know, put your toe in the water. And I don't really do the big voluminous outlines. Um, but you'll do some outlines. I will right? do some outlines. Yeah. But I don't want to write strictly from an outline because then it feels too neat and tied together. It's like, okay, I'm writing today section two, three, little b, you know, and yeah. I'm there. So I sort of feel like if you do too much outlining, it's like driving across country with the sat-nav on, yeah. you know, like this voice talking to you at every point. Turn left ahead, right? <laughs> and... Uh, it, it's, it, you know, whereas the way I do my outlines is sort of like I will look at a map and then I'm driving, I can, you know, take a detour because I know where the road is, right? right? So I, I feel free to actually change my mind when I'm writing and right? surprise myself. It's a creative process. Spontaneity is a big part of that. And, yeah. and even, even when you, you sit down and you think you're going to write a scene a certain way and you go the other way, there's nothing wrong with that because I've always felt if I surprise myself, I'm going to shock the reader. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Who knows far less about the story than I do? Right. And, uh, so the outlines are they they serve a purpose in a limited way, but should not be the touchstone for everything. Yeah, I know. I do find that that when I'm writing a scene, if I know how it's going to end, how it, where the direction is going to go in, it actually is going to be much better if I veer off in another direction totally because I fooled myself. Um, I wrote a book called Paranoia, and I had an ending all set. And halfway through the writing of it, I just thought oh my God, I've got this idea for an ending and it's totally different. It's going to blow people's mind. <laughs> I thought, I could do this. And it was the best twist ending I've done. And it, I think the reason it worked is because it surprised me. Yeah. You yeah. know, it just... But so you want to leave that kind of serendipity. You want to be able to. You do. I've, I've, and I marvel at the fact that some writers sort of know the ending every time. When they first sit down to write the first page, they know the ending. And I, I think, how is that possible? Because you haven't even gotten to the story yet. You have no idea what your characters are capable of. I've, I've started out writing stories where I thought this set of characters is going to carry the main narrative, and these are going to be peripheral characters. And as I'm writing it, all of a sudden, these people on the periphery are sort of jumping up, you know, Hermione Granger. No, pick me, pick yeah. me. I'm a much better character than these people over yeah. here. Yeah. And you're writing along, you're like, God, you know what? I think you're right. And so you kind of shift a little bit of the focus, and, and that changes the narrative, and hence that changes the ending. So until I really get into the story, I have no way really justifiably say it's going to end this way yeah. because uh, I'm just not there yet. So I, I, um, this new book of mine is the second with a, the same continuing character, a series character. 
And I was asked by someone in the audience, a very smart guy, aren't you bored by writing the same character? Right, a serious yeah. character. Yeah. What do you answer? What would you, what you would, have you answered to that? I say it's sort of the opposite of that, because yeah. with, with standalone books, you've got one shot to sort of develop the characters in the arc from A to Z, and then it's done. With series, uh, you have a lot more room to yeah. delve into these characters, make them deeper, more fuller, more vibrant, and explore areas of their life, their backstories, and their future that you never have the opportunity to do when you're standalone. So uh, the answer for me would be the total opposite of that. Yeah. I think it's much more liberal. The characters, you get to know them more. You can, you can it, when you sit down to write a book, you know the kind of story they'll get involved in. Right, yeah. and you don't have to worry on, about setting up the character and the family and the background and all that kind of story. Right, it's already done. Yeah. You can focus on more interesting things. Yeah. I think so. I find it more interesting. And we should do questions. I think at this yeah. point, right? We'll take questions. And if there aren't any good questions, we'll just keep blabbing away. <laughs> Here you go. Thank you. You've just mentioned um, about your characters. Um, We've had an author earlier in the session, uh, a couple of days ago, and, and she said she actually outlined the character right at the beginning. She put all the point, vanity, arrogance, you know, lack of self-confidence, all that sort of stuff. As if, so when she started, I assumed that she knew that character. Do you do that, or does your character develop as it goes through the book? Do, do they show you aspects of them that you didn't know they'd got? That, that's a great question, and, and we have probably have different answers, but. Um, bef bef I had the luxury of be having written eight standalone novels before I started my series, so I thought a lot about my character. And I, I did a lot of thinking about his background, his biography, uh, and who's, who he was. But as I write, I kind of learn more about the character. And as long as it doesn't contradict any facts, and this is the one advice that Robert B. Parker, who did the Spencer books, gave me. He said, don't get specific in the dates. <laughs> Because he had, because Spencer was uh, a, a Korean War veteran when he started, and then by the end, you know, people were saying, "Wouldn't that make him 82?" <laughs> right? So you, so you have to be sort of careful on that. But you, you, you have, yeah. It's I, I try to be more flexible. Even if I have an idea, you know, I sit down with a piece of paper. Okay, uh, white male, breathing. <laughs> you know, and I don't get so specific because I know. The, the devil's in the details there as I move through the book. I, the book I just finished now, this Army Ranger guy, and I sort of had an idea for what I wanted his image to be and his personality and character to be. But as I was writing the book and moving through it, I felt like he was too harsh sometimes, particularly with civilians. And he was laying on his army expertise a little too thick, which made him not likable, not, yeah. not as likable as I would want him to be. So that's what I really pulled back on, even though it might have been on my list to begin with. Uh, j just because it says it in an outline doesn't mean it works in the novel. Yeah. So it wasn't working in the novel, so that was, I had to go back and sort of eradicate those elements in his personality. It made him a much more likable person, and moving forward, it just made it a better book. So the outline, basically, the theory is very different from the actual practice when you realize it's, you've got to tweak this a bit. It's like when you, you, build, you build a house, you've got your blueprints. Anybody who's done any like modeling, remodeling, Tell me, th right. does it ever follow <laughs> what's in the plans? It's right. always costs more, it always takes longer, yeah. and it just, it's different, so it's kind of the same thing. Do you read a lot of books by other authors, and if so, who are your favorites, uh, you know, besides each other? I'm a big Baldacci fan. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a big Baldacci fan, too. Yeah. 
<laughs> I knew you'd I set that up for you, <laughs> you didn't did. I? did. Thank you very right, much. Yeah. I appreciate okay. it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, first of all, the thing that got us into writing thrillers is that we read all these thrillers, right? And you said, oh, I love this, or I could do it, or whatever, right? Let's face it, we both have a way less time to read now than we did. True? Yeah. yeah. And I sort of feel that when I'm reading a thriller written by someone else, I'm kind of like a plastic surgeon meeting a woman at a cocktail party. And I just go, huh, I could do something about that chin. <laughs> you know, it takes some of the fun out of it, right? So I read a lot, actually, and I know you do too, but you have to be careful that you're not sort of analyzing it and saying, hmm, what are they doing here? It, it, that is, you, you, it's, a, it's almost like you're a, a, a coach or another player on a, on a team and you're breaking down game film. And that takes some of the pleasure out of it because you're going along and saying, I can see that plot point. I just tell, she telegraphed right. that one. Yeah. You know, it's too bad. Yeah. It otherwise would have worked really well. But, so when I'm reading for pleasure, I try to just cut that all out and just go for the ride uh, along with everybody else. And, yeah. But um, I read a book when I was in college called In Cold Blood by Truman Capote. It was the first nonfiction novel about the Clutter's family in Kansas. Yeah. And I was a security guard. I worked at night to pay for college. And I was security guard from the midnight shift until 8 o'clock in, in the morning, and I'd go to class in my Pinkerton uniform. And I was a political science major, so I was a like, radical political theory. I walk into class in a uniform. Yeah. You know, and the other, the other students there were, were ready to like, kill me. But I read that novel. Um, while I was, I was, because uh, the place I was at, it was a big General Electric plant, and they would take you around to all these points where you're supposed to key in with your security guard, little key in thing, and um, everything that you could touch in that plant would kill you, <laughs> basically. The guy was like, "Yeah, if you touch that, you're dead. If you go in this room and this stuff is leaking, you're dead. If you go here, you're dead." So, for four dollars an hour, I just stayed in the guard shack. And read in cold blood. In cold blood, <laughs> yeah. and that was the book that really got me interested in thrillers and mysteries and just that, that oomph, that adrenaline rush that you got. So, and, uh, but I, probably Joe's the same. I, I'm probably a writer because I was, I was a big reader and I just loved, you know, I loved being able to see that people could put little words together on a page, symbols on a page and make them so enthralling. And that's really what I wanted to do with my life. Yeah. Way back there. I'm sure a lot of authors hope that at some point one or more of their books might be made into a film. Uh, do you have this desire? And if so, when you're writing one of your books, do you have it with a film script possibly <laughs> uh -huh. in mind? Well, we both had movies made from our books. Yeah. And why don't you start? Um, a great screenwriter wrote your yeah, first one, William yeah. Goldman. William Goldman wrote the screenplay for Absolute Power. It was, yeah. it was, it was a very cool experience, and uh, it's nice to see books translated to film and people enjoy them at another sort of medium, another venue, instead of in a page on a wall with sound and all that. Um, never write a novel expecting or sort of planning that it's going to be made into a movie because what you're doing is you're writing a screenplay disguised as a novel, and it's ultimately going to be a really bad novel. Because a screenplay, even the best screenplays adapted from books, have to pair out so much, the nuances, the subplots, the subtle sort of sophistication of the story to make it trim and tight for an hour and 40 minutes, an hour and 50 minutes. If you take a 500-page book and you translate it verbatim to the screen, it's going to be like five hours long. Right. And there's only, there's only one uh, circumstance which people will sit through a movie for five hours. You have to have two elements. One, you have to have a really young, attractive couple falling in love. 
And secondly, you have to have a really large ship sinking for a really long time. <laughs> <laughs> otherwise, you you're fine. Right? Otherwise, <laughs> you're just you're out of luck. So never, yeah, never think about the odds are too long. You're going to be writing a screenplay instead of a book. Focus on making it a great story. And then if somebody out in L.A. is interested in making it into a film, maybe it'll happen. I, I learned, I mean, yeah, I agree. I, was, uh, I had a movie called High Crimes with Morgan Freeman and Ashley Judd made from one of my books. And I told them I, my agent I wanted to be in this movie. And he said, what do you mean you want to be in it? I said, just, you know, like Alfred Hitchcock. And my agent said, okay, Joe, so you know what? You're not Alfred Hitchcock, <laughs> all right? Hitchcock was the director, and you're just the writer. And in Hollywood, the writer's a schmuck, you know, right? Yes, so, yes they are. Uh, but I actually, they actually did invite me to be in the movie. So I'm in five scenes as a featured extra. I got paid $1,000, and I had to pay 1200 to join the union. <laughs> and, what a deal. Right. Uh, and um, I actually, wanted, I, I was there incognito. My deal with the director was that no, I wouldn't tell anyone who I was. And so one of the actors who played the prosecutor started telling me about the movie. He said, all right, Joe, so where are you from? I said, I'm from Boston. They flew you in for this part? Yeah. He said, all right, so let me explain to you how this movie works and what it's really all about. And he started giving me this, this thematic explanation of the book. I said, all right, listen, Michael, um, I got to tell you, I wrote The High Crimes. Went, oh, man, Morgan, Ashley, this guy wrote the book, you know? <laughs> but I, I learned, really, from being on the set that movies are so different, and you want them to be different, you know? Movies and books, you don't want a movie to be faithful to a book. You want a movie to work as a movie. Yes. And it liberated me because I realized that whenever I write a book, they're gonna, if, it made, if it's made into a movie, they're going to cut out all kinds of stuff. Yes. And you don't know what they're going to cut out. So the, we get, we're the boss. We get to write what we want to write, you yeah. know? That's right. Yeah, so you just, let, just write the book. Forget about everything else. Yeah. I, I just wanted to ask probably both of you, but particularly Mr. Baldacci, um, when, you, when people fall in love with your characters... Don't you feel you're cheating them a bit when you kill one of the best ones <laughs> off? <laughs> Milton Farbout of the Camel Club. I love the Camel Club. And you kill them off? No. <laughs> okay, Mr. Baldacci has left the building. Right. <laughs> I, uh, I know. I, you're terrible. I'm sorry. It's, um, it, it's one of those, it's this, it, was, it was difficult for me to write that. And I, I, you were not the first person to tell me that. And, uh, but realistically and plausibly, when you have a bunch of an ensemble cast involved, and really, take a hit, right? yes, somebody's got to go down. And I've gotten so many, <laughs> including my wife. My wife said, why didn't you kill the librarian? Because <laughs> I can't stand him. I, I love Milton. It, it is. It's difficult, and, but uh, it's just, it lends it to, it to being more plausible that if one of them goes down. And what I, I try to do, I try to add interesting characters on to it, but I, I feel your pain, and, I, and I'm, I'm really sorry. But Milton is in a better place. <laughs> I'm using him now. <laughs> He's thriving with Joe. He really is. <laughs> sorry. Another question or two? With Breakfast TV yesterday describing David as being this festival's equivalent of Beyonce. Oh my God, Hedden. come on. <laughs> Glastonbury. Where are you? That's good. Who, who would Joe describe himself as a... 
Clive Owen. <laughs> now, Do you want to be Beyonce? Joe is Jay-Z. We're a couple. <laughs> just wanted to let you know that. <laughs> Thank you, though. God. Hi. Which characters uh, do you wish you'd created? Jack Reacher. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I couldn't do that. Because I don't like the folding toothbrush thing. I don't get that. <laughs> Sherlock Holmes. Um, uh, yeah. Um, Harry Potter. Yeah, that's yeah. a good one. In fact, my next book, probably Joe's too, I'm going to have a wizard, a vampire, a werewolf, and anything else I can think of. Yeah, and you know, there's there in the U.S. Um, you cannot copyright a title. Can't copyright. I learned that. So my next book will be called, you know, Harry Potter, and <laughs> <laughs> let's go ahead and stop me, right? I, I my first novel was Absolute Power, and I went into a bookstore years later, and um, there was a woman in the in the store asking for uh, like a copy of Absolute Power by David, and uh, so hmm. I, you know, I was kind of hovering over. That's interesting. So the woman went and got the book and gave it to her. It was Absolute Power by David Limbaugh, um, which, who's Rush Limbaugh's little brother. He had written a book after mine. It was nonfiction called Absolute Power. Yeah. And uh, so I went up to the woman and I said, you know, the other Absolute Power is much better. And, uh, <laughs> I'll go over and get you a copy right now. So, that uh, worked well, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the truth is that uh, we write the characters that we want to write, you know, and there are, we want to, you know, when I created Nick Heller, I wanted to do something that had not been done. I wanted to do something that was not, you know, like a Michael Connolly character, right? I want to do something that I could connect with. They are, in, in a sense, they're kind of an alter ego, yeah. right? So we couldn't really write another character. I think if you, to really carve out your own niche in this business, um, you don't chase trends, you, you, right. you create trends. And if you can create something really where no one else has gone before, that makes it memorable and different. Not only does it make it different to the readers, initially when you're going to try to publish, it makes it different for the publishers who's like, well, I've never read stuff like this before. Because they read all the, you know, they get the manuscripts in all the time, and most of them sort of read the same because a lot of writers sort of just chase trends. And I've been in publishing houses where, and with one of my editors, and he's got a stack of manuscripts, and he'll pull one out and he'll say, you know, Michael Connolly wannabe, boom. Yeah. Michael Crichton wannabe, boom. You know, yeah. Dan Brown wannabe, boom. Right. But when you find one that's like, this is a nobody wannabe, this is somebody. Yeah, if it's original, see, those are the is. ones that really, really make it. They you resonate. Know, someone who's doing something different, and they almost always get rejected. You know, like Harry, the way Harry Potter was rejected right. by so many publishers here. Because right. it was new, it was US, different. Right, you know, I remember one of the editors who rejected said, wait, a 500-page story about a wizard? I don't think so, right, right? as a right. kid's book. Right. Uh, right. But, you know. That person is no longer employed right. in the publishing <laughs> industry, by the way. That's like probably, probably He's in true. other retail space. <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so, um, yeah, I think that, yeah, it's true, that, that the ones who really are, do something different are the ones that really hit it. Yeah, they're last. Yeah, and should. We have time for one more question or anybody? I can't see. It's totally dark out there. One more. Oh, okay, I see a waving more. hand. Okay. All right. Uh, hi, this is for Joseph. Um, you said you changed the ending at the last minute for paranoia. Yes. I thought I thought the ending was brilliant. How were you going to end it? <laughs> I love that question and I can't answer it. Because <laughs> I do want some people in this room who haven't read it to read it. 
But let me put it this way. It's going to end in a much more straightforward way, okay? Uh, but half, halfway into the writing of it, I realized I had this idea, and I realized it would actually worked with what I had done to that point, which told me maybe on some sub-intentional level, I knew it, maybe. Or maybe that's rationalization. But uh, uh, so, no, I just, again, it surprised me, so it surprised you. We should, uh, I think we're done now. Right? Think Thank you so thanks, much. Thanks a lot, everybody. Yeah. Hope you enjoyed it. Again. And thanks for having both of us here at Harrogate. Thank you for listening to this event by Harrogate International Festivals. Don't forget to rate and subscribe for this podcast. For more events, recordings, resources, and information about our arts charity, please visit Harrogate International Festivals dot com. <laughs>